All right, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this this morning. We've got two, two weeks left in this series called Love and Hate that we've been working our way through. Um, and I'll just be honest with you guys. I'm, I'm not nervous about what I'm saying. I feel confident what I'm saying. I'm, I want to make sure I clearly represent God's heart this morning. Um, we're going to be talking about issues related to sex and gender. I was going to make a public service announcement about kids. I don't think Bentley really is old enough to understand, so we should be safe there. Um, but was just going to kind of let parents know, you know, you may, you may want to uh, be careful. We're not going to do any, say anything real graphic, but just, yeah, we're talking about sex this morning, so that's the topic. Um, but my heart is, I, I want to be able to clearly represent God's heart. I also want to say... Um, Hang with me through the entire thing. I think there's a, an opportunity for everybody to get offended this morning. So just hang in there through the whole thing, and I'll make sure to get to you. So if you're excited in the first half, you'll probably get upset in the second half. So um, I, I think I'm kidding, but we'll see. Who knows? All right. What do you think? Should we pray again? <laughs> All right. Let's, let, let's ask God to come and help us as we work our way through this this morning. Lord, we need you. God, we need you every week, but Lord, we need you this morning. Um, God, we want to hear your heart on who we are, how you've made us, the way you've designed us to work, spirit, soul, body. God, our emotions, Lord, our, our wills, the way our minds think. God, every aspect of who we are and how you've made us. Lord, would you guide us into that? Would you help us to see and understand why you've made us the way you've made us? why you feel the way you do about certain things. And God, help us to have that kind of rock solid in our hearts. Lord, also give us insight and wisdom on how to love people well around us. God, this, this world is desperate for true love, real love. This world is desperate for peace. God, we're crying out for it. Uh, the problem is, Lord, we look everywhere but you to find that. And so, Lord, I pray that we could be people that, that rest in the truth of who you are, of who you've made us to be, and, God, that we can walk in love as we communicate these truths to our own hearts and to others. God, lead and guide us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. So here's how we're going to tackle this. We're going to do this in, in three parts. I want to say up front, there is no way for me to, in a comprehensive way, cover all the different variations of this topic. I mean, we could spend a month or more really unpacking this. Um, but I, I do wanna encourage you, um, at the end of this, I'm gonna give you some additional resources and places that you can go to do some of your own reading and equipping. Um, I'm also gonna tell you about um, a two-part series that was done at our church back home at Grace Chapel several years ago. It wasn't really a, a preaching so much as a conversation between our pastor um, and, a, and a guy who has a lot of experience in this, in this world. And so there's just some good resources to equip you guys further that I'll give you at the end of the message. You'll also be able to find that stuff online when we share this midweek. Um, we'll make sure to put all that on, on Facebook and on our website. So all of that will be available to you. These notes will be available to you. Um, so as I said, we're going to do this in three parts. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about big picture What's the deal with sex? What's the deal with our gender and how God's made us? Why is that so important? Then we're going to talk very specifically about what Jesus says and where the scripture stands on issues of sex and what's right and what's wrong. And then finally, we're going to end by talking about how do we live as compassionate people? How do we live as compassionate people? How do we interact with the world around us? 
in love. So those are kind of the three things we're going to tackle this morning. So right off the bat, let's start by looking at um, how, how God has designed us to be. And so we're going to go back to the beginning. So in Genesis chapter 1, you can read a larger portion there um, at the end of Genesis. We're just going to look at Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see a couple of things. God, first of all, is having a conversation with himself. Um, this isn't a message about the Trinity, um, but we see even in early texts in the scripture, this reference to God being more than the singular being. We have reference to the Trinity, even in the early pages of Genesis, God being three in one. That's an important element to understand when God then tells us we're made in his image. I made you male and female in my image. We are a reflection of who God is. And part of that reflection is that God in his core is in relationship. Listen, if you can explain the Trinity, please either come up here or talk to me afterwards. I don't know that I can fully wrap my head around it, but I know somehow there's this beautiful scenario where God is a singular entity and yet he's three. He's revealed himself in three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is in such a unique relationship with himself that you kind of can't tell where one ends and the other begins. They're so united. This matters. The fact that God is relational in his nature matters. Because then when God begins to talk to us about how we are shaped, how we are formed, and he communicates with us about how we are to relate with one another, it flows out of the fact that we reflect him. We reflect him. Notice he even says specifically, male and female I've created you. We each communicate different aspects of who God is, how he's wired, what he's like. We need each other. We need each other. We're a reflection of God's image. Y'all with me so far? You're like, Jake, this is Genesis 1. I learned this when I was five. Okay, this is important. It's foundational. So male and female, our, our gender, the way he's designed us to be is a reflection of who he is. Secondly, one chapter over in Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, God began to define this relationship between a man and a woman. And in verse 21, we're going to pick it up and it says, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. At this point, Adam was, was by himself. He'd been created, created and was in the garden and he was looking for someone comparable, a friend, something more intimate than any of the relationships he could have with the animals that were there. And so God causes a deep sleep to fall upon him. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
I love that. They were naked and not ashamed. God created a special, unique relationship. So in the same way that he designed us in our gender to reflect his glory, he said, I've so intimately connected the two of you that I have actually designed you two to come together as one. There's something incredible taking place there. If we take these two passages together and we just look, God is elevating man. He puts us over everything else on the planet. He gives us dominion. He places it in our care. God has placed a special stamp upon humankind to say, you bear my image. Sure, other things I created, they declare my glory. I mean, anybody ever hung out at night and just looked up at the heavens? Anybody getting ready to see a really cool solar eclipse in, what, about a week? Yeah, we, we see God in his glory and his majesty in creation, absolutely. But God said there's something special about human beings. I put a special stamp on who they are and how I've made them. He elevates us. He lifts us up. He says, you are something glorious and wonderful, and you are a reflection of me to the world and to each other. And so when God is talking about how he's made us and the relationships that he's made us for, this isn't just about some random encounter that we may have with each other physically. It goes beyond that. It goes above that. It encompasses that. God cares about how we were shaped and how we were made and the reflection that we give off of the relationship we have with him. Now, to better understand this, I want to encourage you on your own to read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. I'm going to read a portion of this. We're going to look at verses 31 and 32 together. But in this passage of Scripture, we have a clear picture of what God defines as biblical marriage. And he gives us relationship advice. It's also a powerful reflection of another relationship. And that's the part I want to focus on this morning. It's a powerful reflection of another relationship. Check this out. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Now look at this. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What God is saying there, what Paul's writing, is that our relationship with our spouse is bigger than just us. It goes beyond just the two people in that relationship. It is meant to reflect something powerful and special and wonderful. See, when it relates to our relationships with each other, when, it's re, when, it, when we're looking at our relationships sexually, our gender, not only is a, are we a reflection of God's image, it's also a reflection of our relationship with him. You see that? The two go hand in hand. We're reflecting who he is and what he's like, and we're reflecting the unique relationship that we have with him. And in this passage, it defines how Jesus relates to us. He loves us. He cares for us. He sacrifices himself for us. We honor him, respect him, adore him. In fact, we take care of our bodies as a way to honor him. All this stuff is wrapped up in this passage. Here's the bottom line. God's view of gender and marriage and sex is that it reflects God's image and our relationship with Jesus. That's the bottom line. That's how God views it. God's view on sex is not prudish 
and outdated. It's really easy to fall into that trap and go, man, the biblical scripture, what it says is outdated and old and from a previous culture and it's controlling and it's restrictive. And actually, the reality is God's view is much higher. His view is much higher. He is calling us to something that is higher and deeper that, listen to this, that dignifies us that celebrates us and that dignifies and celebrates him. He's saying that our our relationships with one another and specifically our intimacy with one another is a reflection of God and of our relationship with him. It is, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's to be celebrated. And because it's a reflection of that, here's what it should look like. First of all, it should be selfless should be selfless. Husbands, wives that are in the room, our intimacy with each other, with our spouse, should be about taking care of and enjoying the other person. Not just, what am I getting out of this? Not just, how am I feeling in this? It starts as a selfless act. Honoring, dignifying, celebrating, caring for the other person. There's also incredible things pictured in it. Acceptance. I I love that picture we saw. Adam and Eve stood in the garden. They were naked and unashamed. Man, I wish I could feel that way. I look in the mirror and I'm usually just sort of embarrassed. (laughs) Are we going to be able to laugh a little bit at some point this morning? Okay. All right. Listen, intimacy is is a powerful picture of acceptance. I am taking you the way you are. You are accepted. You're cherished. It celebrates beauty. It celebrates beauty. God, this is wonderful. This is amazing. I mean, Adam, you know, I love it. It's so biblical there. Like, oh, but here's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I was like, yeah, buddy, this is awesome. Woman is great. He's excited. We're celebrating beauty. It's about acceptance. It's also about commitment. It's about commitment. The reason that marriage is the healthy place for sex to take place is that acceptance lasts. That beauty doesn't fade. It lasts. I'm steadfast. I don't have to be worried that I'm going to be rejected because you found someone nicer, prettier, younger, better looking, kinder. You're not going to ditch me for somebody else. There's a sense of commitment and that allows me to be vulnerable. I can step into a place of vulnerability. I can be real on every level. The the physical is a reflection of what's happening in our relationships, spirit, soul, and body. I can be vulnerable with my wife about what I'm thinking, about how I'm feeling. It's all connected. It's all connected. God elevates our sexual relationships when he talks about this. It produces trust. It can produce a sense of joy and intimacy. By the way, that's God's desire for our relationship with him. That's the kind of relationship he wants to have with you and I, where we know that he's in it for the long haul, that he's committed to us, that we can be vulnerable and real with him, that we can experience a relationship beyond just, hey, there's some rules that I follow 
because I went to this church or I read some list of commandments and the end. I'm just going to do that stuff. No, God's inviting us into a vibrant, living relationship. And he's saying, you're safe with me because I love you. I'm committed to you. You can be vulnerable with me. All your faults, all your failures, all your shortcomings, I'll take you as you are. And what our relationship can produce is things like joy and peace, a sense of connectedness to God, a sense of assurance in our lives. See, we can't separate these things out. That's the problem. We as people, we cheapen sex because we separate it out to a moment in time. We separate it out to a, to a feeling, an encounter, an emotional thing, a physical thing. I, I, I make it something smaller and I miss the beauty of what God's intended. And the richness and fullness of what God has to offer us. Listen, he designed us to have sexual relationship. He made the equipment. He also designed us to enjoy it. He made us this way. Sex isn't something to be guilty about or ashamed of. It's to be enjoyed the way God intended. And when it's enjoyed the way that he's intended, man, it's, it's like one of the best things. It's awesome. This is what God has for us. This is his heart for us. Until we grasp even just this core basic foundation, nothing else about what the scripture has to say about sex will make any sense to us. When we remove this view, then God's views on sex are controlling. He's robbing us from freedom. He's robbing us from fun. And it's just untrue. He's contradicting who we are. Like these are all things we begin to believe until we start at the base level of understanding how God has made us to be, who he's made us to be, and the kind of relationship he's invited us to be in with each other. That's the picture he gives. Now, we could unpack that a lot more, but that's just kind of a foundation. All right, y'all with me so far? Okay, great. All right, so now, number two. So then what does God have to say about, about sex and specifically sexual immorality? If that's what is good, if that's what is healthy, if that's what is right, he's made us male and female. He's designed us for a lifelong committed relationship. The two become one flesh. I mean, think about the terminology there. Like that's, you're getting ripped in half when we break that. God's designed us for something lifelong and committed. That's his plan. That's his picture. That's what he has. So then what does he say about anything different than that? We're going to unpack this a little bit. This next section, I made a comment last week that with these issues we're unpacking over the next few weeks, step one is kind of figuring out what I believe. And then step two is how do I interact with the world around me? Okay, so we're moving into what do I believe? What does the scripture say about this? And then we'll finish how do we interact with others. So I want to start where Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. And just in a broad sense, I want to give you a picture of, of sort of the opposite side. If we were looking at the positive of what God intended, this is the warning or the danger when we don't recognize the beauty of what God has intended. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to read verses 17 through 20. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Not kick it around, not think about it, not hope you can maybe not accidentally do something you shouldn't. 
Run the other way. Flee sexual immorality. Notice why. Look at this. Every other sin. Can you guys say every other sin? Every other sin means every other sin. We're going to get into this in a minute, but like people wonder why certain things are treated differently than others. Every other sin, I lost my place. (laughs) Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There's something powerful and wonderful and unique about us. As believers is who who Paul is talking to now. As believers, if if we've accepted a relationship with Jesus, he's in us. God's Holy Spirit comes and makes his home inside of us. That old temple that used to exist back in the day and sacrifices would happen and people would go there and worship. Now, the New Testament tells us this is where God resides. I don't have to go somewhere special for that. God's with me and he's in me. That's great. That's wonderful. That's good news. That also means I need to treasure and respect what he's given me, the place that houses him. And in this passage, he talks in more detail all around it about what we do with this body and realizing what I connect this body to, I'm connecting Jesus to. And he even references specifically um, prostitution, going and seeing a prostitute or committing adultery. Do I want to bring Jesus into that? No. There's something powerful about how we were made and what God intended for sex, and it affects us, spirit, soul, and body. It affects how we think, how we live, how we're designed. And so we need to take care to flee from stuff that's off base because it's not what we were intended for and it's not how we were designed. Now, I want to um, talk fairly specifically for the next bit of time about homosexuality. I mean, that's, that's the big issue. That is the hot topic. That's the thing being wrestled with and debated, really not even just in our country, but around the globe. What, what does the scripture have to say about that? Where do we stand on homosexuality as a lifestyle? Um, where do we stand on marriage as it relates to homosexuality? And so I want to spend some time talking about this. Um, it is listed along with other things as being sexually immoral in Scripture. Let me give you some locations that you can check out. We're not going to read all of these, but I want you to know about them. There are two stories in the Old Testament that unpack this. They're found in Genesis 19 and in Judges 19. Both of them make it clear that it's wrong. Also in the Old Testament, in the law, in the book of Leviticus, where all these different laws and rules and regulations were laid out for the people, homosexuality is specifically referenced in Leviticus chapter 18 and in chapter 20. So there are stories where it's represented as not okay, and there is a list of laws where it's represented as not okay. Y'all with me? It's in the Old Testament. Okay. In the New Testament, I want to give you some passages. One or two of these we're going to unpack a little bit more. But Um, Some New Testament passages reference homosexuality and then on a broader sense reference in a in a more general sense sexual immorality. Okay, here's a few passages you can check out. Romans chapter one. We're going to spend about five or ten minutes 
in Romans chapter 1 ourselves in just a moment. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we just read a couple verses from there, but that whole chapter unpacks some stuff. And then, because I think it's important to note, Jesus himself talked about sexual immorality in Matthew chapter 15 and in chapter 19. Now, I want to address some things um, that we can't fully unpack, but I want to mention them before we get into unpacking Romans chapter 1. There are some arguments that are made for homosexuality being okay in God's eyes. There are several of them. Um, One thing that is often referenced is that it was an Old Testament restriction and not a New Testament restriction. That's one thing, but that's, that's not correct, and you're going to see that in Romans chapter 1. Another thing that is referenced is that Jesus didn't talk about it. Well, Jesus did not specifically call it out, but Jesus was a practicing Jewish teacher. Jesus uh, validated the law. He said, I didn't come to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. Jesus validated the law. When Jesus says, I'm against sexual immorality, he means whatever is defined in Scripture as sexual immorality, that's what I agree with. That's reality. So Jesus affirmed that stuff. Um, People will reference the fact, they will try to connect homosexuality with some of the laws in the Old Testament that were more about what's clean and unclean versus laws that were moral laws where God said that moral law stands today even. There were ceremonial laws about how you prepare food or handle things and what's clean and unclean and they they sort of try to get lumped in. And I would be happy to unpack that with anybody that is curious enough to go that deep with it, Um, but it's a misrepresentation and a lack of understanding of the scripture. It's just not accurate. Um, God does not connect any sexual immorality in the Old Testament with unclean things. He labels them separately. In fact, there are things that often come with some pretty severe consequences in the Old Testament, including homosexuality. The last thing that gets said, or not the last, but another thing that gets said, is that the writers of the Bible did not know or understand about monogamous homosexual relationships where two people were committed to each other in marriage for life, even though they're the same gender. That the writers of the scripture didn't know that that was a thing that would happen later. And so therefore, it's sort of outside the parameters of scripture. Well, I've got a, I've got a couple issues with that. One, it simply isn't true. That was already happening in this Roman culture that Paul is writing to. So it's not even accurate. But secondly, and, and here's why I bring it up. We've got to be careful about this. If, if we play games with over here, well, Paul didn't know about that. Or Peter didn't know about that. Or the, the writer of the Gospel of John, they didn't know about that. Well, now what I'm saying is I'm removing the fact that the Scripture was inspired by God. That God, God equipped these people with what to write and how to write it the way he wanted it written. So what I'm really doing is saying the Holy Spirit was too ignorant to look ahead into the future for the way things would be. I'm saying God wasn't smart enough to recognize what was coming. That's what I'm really saying when I say the scripture didn't foresee what was going to happen in our cultural moment. It's just wrong. And what we're doing is we're playing a shell game. Now listen, I know this is a big issue, and it's, it's, a, it's a tough topic 
But we need to understand something. In every culture, in every generation, there are places in Scripture that have contradicted the culture. That's why we need Jesus. All have fallen short of the glory of God. This isn't in judgment to just one issue. I'm a mess. My hand's up when I'm saying I need Jesus. I've blown it. The scripture will contradict us in places where we need to change. And again, the whole point of this series that we've been doing is it's, it comes out of God's great love for us. It's motivated by God's love that he says, I want to heal you. I want to make you whole. I want to help you. I want to protect you. And so it's out of God's love that he corrects us. Okay? So there's just a few things to consider. Um, I wanted to read you one, one scripture, one thing that Jesus references here um, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 19 through 20. For out of the heart come evil things, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus is making a clear distinction between certain sins that are wrong no matter what and, and certain things that were ceremonial law. In that passage, him and his disciples were being called out for not being ceremonial clean, and Jesus is separating the distinction. I want you all to see that. Jesus talked about this stuff. The other thing I just want to say in passing, and then we're going to jump into Romans chapter 1, is this. Um, nowhere in Scripture is homosexuality condoned. And so as much as we, we look at places where it's talked about and we can wrestle through, well, why didn't Jesus talk about it more or not? We also can see clearly in Scripture, nowhere is it reflected in any kind of a positive light as a good thing or a right thing or an okay thing. It just isn't there. All right. That overwhelm you all with all that? Okay. All right, let's jump into Romans chapter 1, and I want to un unpack this a little bit because I want us to see the connection between where we opened and how God views what, what happens when there's a breakdown, when we are sexually immoral, what happens there. So first of all, in Romans chapter 1, if you read all of verses 18 through 25, uh, they capture something that we're just going to reference in one verse, but you could look at verses 18 through 25. They sort of set the tone captured in this verse, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here, here is the pathway towards sexual immorality. It starts by not acknowledging and recognizing God as God and then letting him teach us what's right and what's wrong. It starts there. And that really goes for any breakdown in our lives. When I take God off the throne of my life, when I decide my wisdom, my experience, my opinion is more valid or stronger than his, things become upside down and I get into trouble. And so we start by referencing God for guidance. And he says, listen, here's the reality. He said, your foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, you begin to convince yourself that you're wise and you're right. And in reality, your view is, is distorted. It's broken. You can't see clearly. And so what does that lead to? As we move down to verses 26 and 27, it says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is clearly referencing homosexuality behavior as wrong. Verse 28. Why does this happen? What's going on? Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Sexual behavior inside of God's design elevates us. It lifts us up. It's glorifying. It's dignifying. Apart from him, it's the opposite. It brings us lower. It debases us. It harms us. It clouds our view of reality. This is what God says happens. And then look at what comes out of this. And I want you to see this because this isn't just about attacking sexual behavior that's wrong. It's not just um, addressing homosexuality. It's defining a culture that is beginning to be out of control. And I want you just to listen to this and you tell me if this sounds familiar. What comes out of this as we get handed over to a debased mind? Check this out. People with a debased mind in Romans 1, verses 29 through 31, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. God says when we begin to move into this place of removing him from the throne and not taking his viewpoint on things, we lower ourselves. We lower our humanity. We lower the standards with which we treat each other. We do it sexually. Broken things come out of sexual relationships. And then we begin to have a society that, that harms itself over and over and over again. This striving and fighting. And I mean, gosh, like just this week, I even found myself even more than normal. Like, okay, I want to pay attention to what am I seeing in the newspaper? What's around me? I don't know if any of y'all saw this this week. Did you see that there were two teenage girl babysitters that got in trouble because they took an eight-month-old baby and stuck it in the refrigerator, closed the door, the child was screaming, and they're filming it and laughing, and they post it to Snapchat. Inventors of evil. We devolve. We come up with crazier and crazier and more bizarre ways to treat each other and to do things. And we laugh. Did y'all see the video of the guy that was drowning and the bros were like on the side of the, the pond? This was a couple months ago, filming it and laughing while the guy's drowning and mocking him because he can't get out. Am I the one that saw this? Okay, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> the town they're in didn't even have the laws in place to prosecute those guys for not helping the guy that was drowning. They're mocking him. Guys, we could go on and on and on. We are living in a society that is falling apart. Am I the only one that feels that way? And it's not just related to homosexual. I don't want to lay it all there. I'm just saying there are patterns in a society where we lower our standards, we debase ourselves, and the level of sin continues to increase. And the younger generation begins to lose sight lose clarity of what's right and wrong. We want to throw off moral boundaries and then wonder why things are such a mess. 
But the minute we try to bring the solution to the table, like maybe God has something to say that would bring life and sanity and peace and love, well, I don't want that kind of restriction and control because we're missing the heart of God. And so this, this mindset sets in. And then finally, the last statement that's made in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, here, here's the real root of the problem. And this is where we have to look in the mirror, where the church has to look in the mirror. When we become compromising people ourselves, what that leads to is then also being compromising about what we say is okay. The more I compromise, the more I allow the compromise of others. And it just becomes this snowball that rolls downhill. The, one of the reasons why the church has such a hard time talking about this is we don't take things seriously like divorce. We don't take things seriously like adultery or like sex outside of marriage. Pornography. See, the, the problem is we've allowed so much compromise into our own lives that it's become the norm not to hold ourselves even to a high standard. And so we've lowered our own standard. And here's the problem. There's two dangers. We have the danger of hypocrisy, which, by the way, is what a lot of the country points to when we stand up and say this isn't right. They're right. We are hypocrites. We are. They, call, they, they point that out. The other thing is we compromise. And when we compromise, here's what happens. We lose our voice and we lose our conviction. And when we lose our voice and we lose our conviction, we begin to confuse two words. We, we switch them. We begin to think of compassion and compromise as the same thing. We wouldn't say that out loud, but that's what we do. We aren't being compassionate. We're being compromising. There's a difference. And so what we're going to do to wrap this up is we're going to look at Jesus and how he interacts with someone who's blown it massively, specifically in the area of sexual immorality, and how he handles it. And my hope is that we will see God's heart to both correct what's wrong and have a massive amount of love and grace for the person in need. We're not called, when I say that we've been hypocrites in these areas, I'm not saying we've been called to be perfect. We've been called to be honest. And we've been called to repent and ask for help. See, I, I have something to offer when I can say, listen, here's what I've done. Here's how I've sinned. Here's where I've fallen short. Here's where I've been broken. And I found a loving and compassionate God who would forgive me, who would set me free, who would give me a fresh start in life. And I've watched him forgive me. I've watched him heal me. I've watched him begin to change me. And then I have something real to offer someone else in need. So let's look at how Jesus approaches this. John chapter eight. We're gonna be covering verses two uh, through 11, but I'm just gonna split this up into, into two parts here for just a moment. Are y'all, y'all good? Y'all hanging with me? I know this is, like intense this morning. Okay, John chapter eight, verses two through six to start. Early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. 
The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Then Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now I think it's interesting here what's happening. Notice they came to test him. Why would they do that? They thought there was a good chance Jesus was going to compromise here. Why? Because sinners were drawn to him. Because the lost were hanging out with him all the time. They were already accusing Jesus of being a drunk and a partier. So they, they saw that there was something unique about Jesus. People who were lost and hurting and in need were drawn to him. And so the judgmental hypocrites were sure he would compromise. When we decide to step into this and be people who are willing to be compassionate people who will reach out with a heart to help and to love and to care for people, but also not to compromise. When we do that, we risk being misunderstood. Jesus risked being misunderstood on both sides because the religious people might feel like he's not being strong enough And maybe when Jesus told certain people, your lifestyle needs to change, they would go away and not be willing to change. We risk being misunderstood, but it's for the benefit of others out of love for them. And so the passage continues, John chapter 8, verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Notice that everyone left. There was only one person who remained that had a right to throw a stone. Jesus didn't come to stone us. He came to climb up on the cross in our place and die for us. He came not to condemn the world, but to love it. For God so loved the world, the whole world, that God gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whatever sin, whatever struggle, whatever background, anything we've read this morning that sounded intense, degrading, Devolving those girls that put the kid in the fridge. Every person has the opportunity to be loved and saved and redeemed by Jesus Christ. He lays down his rights to throw a stone and instead he offers grace. And so he has every right and yet he doesn't do it. But notice, he doesn't condemn, but does he condone? Does he say, it's all right, girl, go back at it. No, he tells her, go and sin no more. It's a a clear picture of change and repentance. I'm going to take you right where you are. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm going to get rid of all the noise of the people that are just out here throwing rocks at you. Like, let's remove all the judgmental folks and let's just face-to-face love, compassion. I see you. I care about you. I'm the only one that has the right to forgive you, and I do. I forgive you, and I love you. Now I'm inviting you to a place where you can change. And part of what we're, we're afraid of in our culture is to to offer 
that there's an opportunity to change. I, I get it. It's a hard one to talk about because there has been an acceptance that we are born this way. And, and I want to talk to you guys about this. On one level, that's right. You know why part of us sort of agrees with it? It feels right, like maybe people are born this way. It's because we're born sinners. We're born broken people. And I don't know about you, but here's what I've noticed about myself. There's some sins that are not all that appealing to me. I'm not that drawn to them. There's other ones that I can't hardly stop doing. Like, I, man, anger. Like, I get angry. What is wrong with me? Why, why has that cycle not been broken yet? And I, and I wrestle with it and I repent of it. And I believe I've grown. I don't know. You'll have to ask my wife, I guess. But that's one I've struggled with. Like, we all have certain leanings of things that we battle with. And so on some level, yes, I agree. Like, we're born this way. We're broken people in need of Jesus. But on another level, Jesus is all about changing us. He transforms us. He gives us the opportunity to be made new. See, the reality is, absolutely, we have certain leanings towards or inclinations towards certain behaviors or desires. It could be based on past experiences. It could be just a thing that's sort of been passed down to us. Is it nature? Is it how it's nurtured? Is it a little bit of a mixture of both? Like every case is unique. But we have been impacted by the world we live in and we've been born into a world where we have a sin nature. And so we're broken people. The reality is though, our desires don't have to define us. I'm gonna say that again. Our desires don't have to define us. Now, I want, to, I want to be as kind as I can possibly be with this. I actually find it to be insulting if you've wrapped up my entire identity as a human being, all the ways that I'm shaped and molded and made into just what my sexual desires are. You're lowering who I am. I don't want people walking around just going, well, there's heterosexual Jake. That's the defining characteristic of his life. You laugh, but we, we've made it like a defining characteristic. That's lowering people. That's not lifting them up. That's lowering them. You're more than that. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God has shaped you and made you and designed you. There might even be certain personality things that have been labeled as this, and they have nothing to do with that. They're just your personality. There may be horrible things that happened to you as a young child that have shaped the way you live and think now. You might have, might have grown up in a culture where you were struggling with a thought or an idea, and that got promoted instead of being educated in a healthy way through it to understand who you are and how God made you. There's all kinds of factors that have made us the way that we are. But the bottom line is, every single one of us can have a life-changing encounter with Jesus where we can be transformed. I want to close. I'm not even going to explain it. I'm just going to let it speak for itself. But I want to close with two things. I want to read to you a quote from a, a book we've been going through and, uh, with some friends here in the church called The Good and Beautiful God. I want to read a quote to you from this book um, about a really cool guy. And then I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21, and I'm going to pray for us. Here's this quote. I love this. Um, all right. The book starts and he says, the writer of the book says, one of my favorite stories is about John of Kronstadt, 
He was a 19th century Russian Orthodox priest at a time when alcohol abuse was rampant. None of the priests ventured out of their churches to help the people. They waited for people to come to them. But John was compelled by love and he went out into the streets. People said he would lift the hungover, foul-smelling people from the gutter, cradle them in his arms and say to them, this is beneath your dignity. You were meant to house the fullness of God. Man, I love that picture. What if instead of gathering in church walls in order to judge, we gathered to, to wrestle through some hard issues and figure out who are we, how do we think, what do we believe, and then how can we carry a message of life and hope and love to a world in need? One of the reasons we struggle with this issue is we're wondering how we represent ourselves in the loud chatterbox of Facebook instead of this person right here. Who is this person that I know, that I have a relationship with? Who's the family member? Who's the friend? Who's the neighbor? And how do I love that person with compassion, with hope? What about when they're starting to realize, man, maybe I'm, maybe I'm stuck, maybe I'm struggling. Who are they gonna turn to? Are you the person they would call? Do they know that you're there and you love them and you care about them? That, that's, I wanna be that kind of guy. And so I wanna, I wanna close by reading this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. This is the hope we have in Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just asking for help. God, help us to, to know you better. Help us to understand your heart and the specifics of what you have to say on hard issues like this one this morning. God, help us to be people that recognize the beauty, the dignity of what you're calling us to. God, we were made in your image. That's incredible. Lord, help us to not only know what we believe, but know how to communicate it. God, that we could accurately reflect your heart, why you care about the things that you care about, that you want to heal people that are broken, you want to invite people into health and into wholeness. God, help us to meet people with compassion without compromising. God, help us to be so in tune with the grace and work you've done in our own hearts that we have a real story to share with other people. That we're able to say, I need grace. God has met me, forgiven me, changed me. He's still patient with me as I struggle. And God, may we have a place in our lives for others who are lost and hurting. God, help us to learn how to live in this generation. 
where a large portion of our population views very differently on this issue. God, help us to speak truth and in love. Help us to be more and more like you. Thank you that you're with us and you're in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.